This is the word of our God. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the names of the pagan priests. Those who worship the hosts of the heavens on the housetops. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Be silent. In the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes of the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktish, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. 
Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this heavy passage, may it weigh upon the scales of our hearts, and in Christ may we not be found wanting. Father, use this your word to convict and convince, and use also the preaching of your word today to comfort, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we looked at Zephaniah 1 last week, and I had to break off the, uh, the last point from my sermon. I, I mean, I was smart enough to know that several days in advance. Uh, but there's so much in this passage. We thought last week about uh, God coming in judgment. And when he comes in judgment, all men will be cut off from the land. That is, all will be subject to the final judgment. Just as Israel in uh, days not long after Zephaniah would all be subject to a temporal version, a a pointing ahead version of judgment when the Babylonians came, being royal wouldn't save you from Nebuchadnezzar. Being a merchant with a lot of money wouldn't save you from Nebuchadnezzar. All would come under the judgment. And that was to point them ahead. As Zephaniah is pointing us ahead to the last day. And just in case we we want to start making excuses, uh, Zephaniah then starts categorizing some of these these men who will come under judgment. We talked about the idolaters, those who worship idols, the syncretistic, those those who worship the true God and idols. I'm doing both. I'm covering my bases. I'm a member of the church. I go to church on Sunday. Uh, I I also have my horoscope or whatever the syncretism might be. And then we talked about the apostate, those who who at one point are part of the visible church. Many have made profession of faith publicly in a visible church and then deny that faith and leave the faith. These all will be judged. The idols will not save you from judgment. The partial worship of Yahweh, of God the Father through Jesus Christ, partially, with half your heart, will not save you from judgment. And denying the existence and authority of Jesus Christ will not save you from judgment. Well, maybe, maybe you can hear all of that and say, not me. Those categories don't fit me. There's one more category that I think is implied in this chapter. I want to give it a whole sermon because it is implied. It's not explicitly stated, and I don't want you to miss it. It takes a little thought. But the, the final category Zephaniah attacks in this passage The final category, God says, will be judged in this passage is the presumptive covenanter. I've chosen 
reformed language there, haven't I? Covenanter. Because I'm trying to make a point. The reformed uh, doctrine of the covenant is a, a wonderful thing. It's a biblical thing. Being a covenanter is a, a great blessing. One who is in a relationship with God by covenant. But the visible church can be filled with presumptive covenanters. What would that be? That would be someone who presumes on the blessings and the benefits of the covenant despite scorning the right relationship with the covenant God through the mediator. The one who presumes on the benefits and blessings without having the inward relationship. Old Testament Israel had a lot of those people. Does the church have those people? Oh, absolutely we do. Absolutely. And having the right form of government in your bylaws, having the, the true doctrine of the faith in your statement of faith doesn't guard your church from having presumptive covenanters. They can be in the best churches. In fact, maybe this category is most most frequently seen in the best churches because it ties itself to that which sounds right and biblical and theological and doctrinal but it focuses on the the thing we get out of it and not on the relationship with God itself. And so in the church today, there is, is this tendency, and this is the challenge of Zephaniah 1, to faithful church members to examine our hearts. God in covenant gives us a great number of uh, blessings of various types. They're good things. They're things we ought to prize and celebrate that God gives us. But we ought not to have faith in them. Like visible church membership. It's a real blessing. That, that I, I think many, many of us feel that having our names on a piece of paper, being part of a congregation, is more than a piece of paper. It's part of the it's part of the joy of us confessing before the world our faith. There's a real blessing there. But is our faith in having our name on the paper? Uh, I'm doing my application at the beginning if you hadn't noticed. What about, what about baptism and the Lord's Supper, signs and seals of the covenant of grace, things which covenanters ought to celebrate? You ought to celebrate your baptism. If you haven't thought of it since it happened, shame on you. You ought to celebrate that, but you ought not to put your faith in it. Celebrating the Lord's Supper this evening, Lord willing. It's a 
beautiful blessing of the covenant of grace to nourish and nurture weak hearts. But we ought not to put our faith in eating the bread and drinking the wine, the juice. Tithing might be another example. And our text makes quite clear that your money won't get you out of judgment. Not even the money you toss in the offering plate. Yeah, we, we, we can have the real temptation to be presumptive covenanters. And I want you to hear what God says to the presumptive covenanter. Gather together, O undesirable nation. That's a heavy sentence. Undesirable is a heavy enough word. I know some of your translations have. Uh, uh, now I just blanked on what they have instead. But it's still, it's still shameless, right? Shameless uh, nation. That's bad enough. But undesirable, I think, is, is closer to, to, the, to the meaning in terms of the context. But this, this idea of undesirable. You think, you think you're so wonderful. You think the judgment could never touch you because, oh, God just finds you so precious. And God says to the presumptive covenanters of Israel, you are undesirable. But, but it's actually worse because in the Hebrew this word nation, goy. And the Hebrews used it like a curse word. There are some instances where that's not the case. Isaiah, for example, will sometimes talk in a positive way about the, the nation of God, goy of God. But the majority of uses in the scripture are negative. And in Hebrew usage, it was negative. Let me give you the word that eventually took the place of goy in the Hebrew mouth. Gentile. And, and you know from reading the Gospels in the New Testament, that was a... Maybe it wasn't a curse word, but it wasn't a compliment. And God here is saying to them, if they think, well, there's all the goy out there, but we are so wonderful. He says, of all the goy out there, you're undesirable. Let's, let's think about the idea of presumptive covenanting in chapter 1. And then we'll pick up again with this idea of goy and nation next week, Lord willing. There are a number of uh, covenant administrations in the Old Testament. Things which the Israelite prided themselves with. Abraham is our father. 
We were with Moses at Sinai. David is our king. And the northern ten tribes of Israel may already be off in exile, but we who are left in Jerusalem, David is our king. And even something that was broader than just Israel, the covenant, for example, made through Noah with all creation, what is sometimes called the covenant of preservation. Israel knew about it. Israel talked about it. The world forgot about it. And so in our text in verse 3, Zephaniah uses language that is very reflective of the language that we find in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Chapter Genesis 8 verse 20 through Genesis 9 17 where God through Noah to creation declares man is so wicked and the flood didn't fix that that if I punished the world with a flood every time a generation arose whose hearts were incredibly wicked. Even if the only men on earth were members of the visible church, I would destroy this world every generation. But, he says through Noah to creation, I covenant not to destroy the world each generation. I will not flood it again. Why? For the sake of the beasts and the birds and the creation itself. And in that context of making this covenant, God talks about the importance of the life. The life of the living thing, whether beast, but then especially man made in the image of God. A presumptive covenanter could look at that and say, safe from Safe from wrath. God promised not to destroy the world again. I get the benefit. I'm safe. I'm aware of it. I'm safe. And verse 3 of our text uses the same language, some of the same uh, constructions and thoughts, but with the reversal. God says, I will not flood, but I will consume. I will consume the man and the beast and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Notice that also reflects on the fifth and sixth days of creation, but in reverse. It looks like the covenant through Noah is not going to protect anyone. The the presumptive covenanter, don't be afraid, I'm not actually saying that, by the way. But But the presumptive covenanter would say that if there's any judgment in there at all, it's because God would have to break his covenant for that judgment. That's the presumptive thing. And there's presumptive people who do something similar in the New Testament church. Peter tells us so. Very directly, in fact. Second Peter chapter 3, 
They say, where's the sign of God's coming? You you talk about judgment, you apostles. Where's the sign of judgment since the beginning of the world? Things have remained as they are. Peter says, no, you're, you're forgetting something that happened. Things aren't as they were because a flood happened. Oh, but, but Peter, he made a promise after the flood not to judge again. No, says Peter. He made a promise to wait until the heavens and the earth pass away. As long as seed time and harvest. He will not flood the world again in that judgment. But that doesn't mean the judgment won't come. It will come once at the end of the age when he consumes the heavens and the earth and burns away the dross and leaves the purified new heavens and new earth where only righteousness dwells. There will be judgment. Well, where's the sign of this? He's waiting. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting till all the elect are saved. But he will come. You see, the presumptive covenanter needs to be reminded he's coming verse 3 we also see the covenant with Moses alluded to and this is the most clear of these we read in verse 13 therefore their goods shall become booty and their house is a desolation they shall build houses and not inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and not drink their wine. And again, here it's a seeming reversal, a seeming going back on the covenant blessings. Because because God had promised a covenant inheritance. And the presumptive covenanter says, no one can take away this land. God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised it to my father and his father and his father before him. This land is mine in covenant with God as a promise. Nebuchadnezzar can't take this away from me. That's presumptive covenanting. And once again, it's a presumptive covenanting which fails to listen to what God said. When we think of verse 13 here, It is a clear reflection upon what Moses anticipates in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we've read already in our service. Did you pick up on it? Hear those words again. Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 15. So it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Houses full of good things which you did not fill. Hewn out wells which you did not dig. 
vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. See the presumptive covenanter latches on to part of the text. I get to move into a home I didn't build and reap the benefits. That's what being in covenant with God is. It's all reward. I'm living in the house right now. It's had a few updates over the years since my forefather moved into it during Joshua's day, but it's the same basic structure. Uh, There's some new vines out in the vineyard, but it's the same basic vineyard that my forefather moved into and started eating the grapes and drinking the wine without having to do the work. That's what covenanting with God means, the blessing. And, and yet, just reflect on verses 12 through 15, Deuteronomy 6, 12 through 15. Couldn't they be Zephaniah 1? Worshiping idols? Forgetting the Lord your God, not taking his jealousy seriously and faithfulness to him seriously, not believing that God will do good or evil, not trusting that he will destroy the wicked. It's Zephaniah 1, but stated in the covenant declaration of Deuteronomy 6. But the presumptive covenanter ignores that and latches on to the benefit package. The benefit package. God can take away what he gives. An astonishing thing is, to whom he gives his son he will lose none. But let's not confuse that with the outward benefits, the outward graces that God gives us here below. The things that are signs that point to eternity. The physical things that point our way to the spiritual reality. Let's not, let's not conflate the two. The covenant with Noah won't save them from the day of judgment. The covenant with Moses won't keep them from losing their homes. They'll do the work, but they'll lose the house. It's not even just that they lose the house and the vineyard. They're their outward religion is going to include them doing a lot of work that gets them nowhere. But there's a third covenant alluded to here in verse 8. And that is the covenant with David. Remember, God had promised David 
there would never cease to be a king of his line on the eternal throne. That he would not remove his love from the house of David as he had from Saul. You think any royal blood in Jerusalem was presumptive? Maybe Jerusalem falls, but at least I'll be safe because I'm a son of David. Verse 8. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such who are clothed in foreign apparel. Now that that last phrase could mean one of two things. It could just refer to them being rich. They can afford foreign apparel. But I think it says something more than that. Here's the line of David. And they are making friends with the world. They are dressing like the world. They are trading with the world. They prize the riches of Egypt. And we know from history, literally, they prized the horses of Egypt for which they were not to trade. Being of the line of David will save no one on the last day unless they have the blood of David's greater son as their security. True covenanting, then, is, is what they needed. It's what Josiah had, by the way. The king in this day, we don't, again, know where in his timeline this prophecy came, before or after his revival. But he didn't trust in these outward things, did he? He humbled himself. He rent his clothes. He fell before the face of the Lord. He pleaded mercy. He was a son of David on a throne. And he didn't presume that meant he got to keep the throne. Inheriting a house from his forefathers. He didn't assume he'd get to keep his house. True covenanting. That's what we need as well. So, so let me make a few things clear about my allusions to these seeming reversals of the covenant in Zephaniah 1. First, Zephaniah is not saying God's covenant promises fail. He's not. Nor is he saying that those who are in covenant truly, spiritually, by faith, can lose the grace they have received. He's not saying that either. Rather, he is confronting those who trust in the promises and the benefits, but are not truly reconciled to the covenant God. They want the benefits without the relationship 
They want the eternal life without faith and repentance. They trust their church status, but have no interest in the reality of faith. It's a dangerous thing. And what Zephaniah, God through Zephaniah, is really saying is not that you can lose his covenant promises or that he fails at his covenant promises. He's saying you only get the covenant promises when you have the spiritual reality. That the covenant promises are only for such. They're only really a benefit to any when that person is in true relationship with God. Now, what benefit was it to be born in Israel? Well, there was an outward benefit, wasn't there? Of all the places you could have been born in the world in Josiah's day, this was the one that had King Josiah and a couple of godly priests and Zephaniah preaching. The others, those pagan children, they didn't hear this. And the following call to repentance we're going to look at next week. That's a benefit. It's only a benefit if you respond to it by faith. It actually condemns you further if you reject it. A greater condemnation. That's why, of course, the New Testament says few should become teachers. There's a greater condemnation with more knowledge. Outward religion, outward covenanting does not save. And, and it's important for us in the New Testament to know it never did. What's the big covenant that is not alluded to in Zephaniah 1? It's Abraham, isn't it? It's the one I didn't hit on today yet. Here we go. Was Abraham a covenant that brought eternal benefit just outwardly? No. The prophet Jeremiah, not long after Zephaniah, will say that the circumcision of the flesh, that's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, isn't it? The circumcision of the flesh will avail you nothing if your heart isn't circumcised too. And so he'll declare, he'll declare the need for Israel to be heart circumcised. Of course, that wasn't just some new revelation through Jeremiah. Hey, guess what? All this outward stuff you've always been taught, it's not enough anymore, guys. You need the inward. No. Moses, in the Mosaic Covenant, reflected on the covenant with Abraham, and he said, Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. And then later in that same covenant book, Deuteronomy, he will reflect upon the fact that although we are told to circumcise the foreskin of our hearts, we are not capable as sinners of doing that. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he declares, the Lord, will circumcise your heart. 
The outward avails nothing. If you don't have the inward reality, says Moses about the Abrahamic covenant. Says Jeremiah about the Mosaic covenant. We must have the right view of ourselves. Beloved, you are not more desirable than the rest of our neighbors. You're not. We aren't left to ourselves. We're the same as the world when left up to our own righteousness. And sitting here together once or twice a week doesn't change that if that was all we were relying on. We must not think that the outward sign of the covenant, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or the outward participation in the church, are what secure the benefits for us of the covenant. Only relationship can secure the benefits of the covenant for you. And that relationship is only secure for you in a person. In the person. Inheriting money from your parents is not a relationship. It's a result of a relationship. But if you don't have the parent, you don't have the benefit. There must be the person. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant of grace, the testator of the will who secures for you the benefits, but only when you are in him. So we are only understanding covenant and sacraments rightly if we see them imaged in the work of Christ. In the sacraments, we aren't seeing me and what I've done. We're seeing Christ's work of claiming us and cleansing us and redeeming us and in the Lord's Supper, sustaining us as well. Not us being good or better. We are undesirable. But although he had no beauty that we should desire him, he was desirable. For the Father said, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. And when we look in faith to Him alone, then we do know the fullness of the benefits of the covenant, the promises of being a desirable nation by grace. Hear how Peter expresses this in his letter. Coming to Christ as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Thanks be to God. The Lord is coming. Don't presume the blessings or trust the benefits. He's coming. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath to come.